the door to the room at the top of the tall, dark keep opens with a small creaking noise. Behind the door, your worst fear awaits you. A man sits there. He looks you in the eyes. A slow smile spreads across his bearded face. And he says to you, Hello and welcome to Rollin' Bones. I'm Ryan Howard. How's everyone doing today? Today we have a very awesome episode of Rollin' Bones for you guys. I sat down and talked with one of the coolest guys that we've ever had on the show. No offense to everyone else. Definitely the most accomplished guy. Again, no offense to everyone else, but this guy has been working in RPGs since the 90s. He is the creator of Savage Worlds. He's the creator of Deadlands. Ladies and gentlemen, I got to talk to Mr. Shane Lacey Hensley, which was awesome because I've actually shared a table with him before. I've talked about this, but he did a, uh, a convention one-shot for uh, Deadlands Reloaded that I got to participate in at a Mace in Charlotte couple years ago. That was still very early on in me playing role-playing games. I'd only played D&D at that point, and I learned a lot about being a player and being a GM just from that one session, and I'll, I'll talk about that with Shane. But first, let's get into this week's Rent from Behind the Screen. So, since we are talking to Shane this week, I wanted to make this rant about why you should branch out. Why you should play game systems that are not strictly D&D or strictly high fantasy. There is an embarrassment of riches when it comes to RPGs. There are tons of them. There are tons of just high fantasy ones. Some people love D&D. People like me. I, I love D&D. Some people love Pathfinder. Some people love 13th Age. On and on and on. You can get into, like, Lord of the Rings RPGs. There's a Witcher RPG, if you're like me and you're really into the Witcher. But then there's also superhero RPGs. And, you know, stuff like Spycraft, which is more, you know, modern weaponry. There's the whole cyberpunk genre. There's, of course, Western RPGs. There's pirate RPGs. There's even a, like, a Bible RPG, if you can believe it. I couldn't, but it's real. It's called Testaments, and Green Ronin published it. But there's a whole world of RPGs and RPG rule systems out there. And what I want to encourage you to do is, every now and then, you know, with your group, try something new. You don't have to run a whole campaign. You don't have to drop your D&D campaign and immediately pick up Deadlands Reloaded and start playing that. But try something new. Something that I want to do with my group eventually, once I kind of get them used to 5th edition D&D, is at some point, uh, after we finish a module, take a break and either let someone else DM or I will run them through a new system. Now, like I said, they're all new. They need to get the rules down for the first system that I'm teaching them before I start throwing new systems at them. That'll confuse them. It confused me back in the day. But I do encourage any group that's, you know, been going for a long time, maybe some of your players are starting to fatigue on uh, more elves and dwarves and dragons and wizards, maybe throw something different at them. Maybe be like, all right, uh, for the next few weeks, next couple months, something like that, we're going to play an adventure in a superhero RPG. And uh, this is the system we're going to use. Um, I've been reading it. Let me walk you through the rules. Let's create characters, let's do a session zero. Or maybe here's a Western RPG. Here's Deadlands. Deadlands is a ton of fun. But just always be willing to try something new in the RPG realm because there's a ton of stuff out there. Now, one thing I'll say, it can be a little bit difficult to run an RPG in an existing universe, uh, like Star Wars RPGs, or uh, even like 
there are specific Marvel and DC RPGs. Those can get a little bit tough because if you've got people at the table who are familiar with the universe, then you get the hold on, but this didn't happen then, that, that kind of thing. That's a whole nother rant that I'm going to deal with later. If at some point I have someone on who worked on one of the Star Wars RPGs or something like that, we'll talk about that with them, and maybe I'll do a rant about it. But for now, I'm just encouraging you to leave kind of the realm of high fantasy every once in a while. And to do this, you don't even necessarily have to leave fantasy. Uh, DM Dave, from a couple episodes ago, has been posting a lot about doing a sword and sorcery campaign. Now, for those of you who don't know, sword and sorcery is basically Conan the Barbarian. It is very low fantasy, low magic, lots of violence, kind of almost medieval, like almost historical fiction, but there's still a lot of weirdness to it. Uh, There's still casters and stuff, but they're not as common. They're usually super evil and it encourages your players to kind of get out of playing you know their their typical classes especially if you have players who are constantly stuck in i want to be a caster i want to throw big giant magic around throw them in a sword and sorcery world and 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 see how they do there or even if you if you don't want to cut off your player's ability to access you know big magic maybe instead of doing a, a traditional fantasy maybe try urban fantasy Maybe try, like, the Dresden Files RPG, or just do the D20 Modern Rules for 5th Edition. Or maybe uh, you've got a guy like uh, David Holland from my first D&D group. He uh, is super into sci-fi, specifically Star Wars. He is a Star Wars fanatic, and every now and then he'd just kind of get tired of the high fantasy and he'd want to do sci-fi stuff. In fact, right before I moved... He was encouraging me to run a uh, Star Wars Saga Edition campaign, and I would have if I hadn't moved. I would have made that kind of my next thing is, okay, we're going to do a Star Wars campaign. Or maybe we're going to use the 5th edition rules, but we're going to do space fantasy. I love space fantasy. That's that's one of my favorite things. I, I too love Star Wars. But what it comes down to is kind of to flex your creative muscles as a DM or a player and to explore all the great books that are out there every now and then you should definitely consider changing it up a little bit as far as your your campaigns go. Once you get to a good place, maybe you finish a module or your players just beat like a milestone bad guy and in-game they're going to have a little bit of downtime. Maybe go, all right, guys, we're going to take a, a little bit of a break from this, a little bit of a break from D&D. We'll come back to it. Come back to your characters. Uh, but let's play Starfinder for a little bit. Let's play Spycraft. Let's play... Deadlands, Mutants and Masterminds. Let's play Savage Worlds, but set in the 1920s. It's always good to try something new every now and then. And like I said, there are a ton of books out there. Not only are there a ton of RPG books out there, there are a ton of good RPGs out there for every single genre. There's like ridiculous stuff that I see in used bookstores that I desperately want to try, but I know that like, oh, this book was made in 1994 and these rules are going to be super crunchy and my players are just now getting used to fifth edition. This is going to be like putting them on the moon. So if you find yourself kind of getting tired of the fantasy or, you know, you see a cool RPG book in a used bookstore or online and you want to give it a try, pick it up if if it's a decent price. Uh, read through it. If you like what you read, uh, try to teach it to your players. Try to run them through it. Should be fun. So that's going to do it for today's rant from behind the screen. Now, 
Like I said at the top of the episode, we have a very good interview, a very awesome interview with Shane Lacey Hensley coming up, so stay tuned for it. Welcome, everybody, and as I said at the top of the show, uh, today we have a very special guest on. This man has quite the impressive resume, uh, not the least of which includes uh, creating Deadlands and Savage Worlds. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of Pinnacle Entertainment Group, Mr. Shane Lacey Hensley. Hi! Shane, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. Thanks for coming on. I've I've talked about this on the show before. Uh, we have actually met only once before, but I had the distinct pleasure of playing in one of your convention one-shots. Okay. This was at Mace in Charlotte, North Carolina, I believe in 2016, and it involved the Demon Javelinas. Oh, yeah. The Devil Pigs of Cochise County, one of my favorites. Yep. <laughs> and I bring that up because that session was it was very foundational for me in the way that I DM and the way that I play. Okay. When I started when I did that session with you, I'd only been playing D&D for about a year, and I'd only ever played D&D. I'd never played anything outside of that realm. And what I discovered that night was that what I care about as a player is role-playing. Yeah. Because I got stuck with a character that I didn't necessarily want to play. So I decided just to look at the sheet and see, you know, what, what kind of made this character interesting. I ended up with the Huckster. Okay. And so I just kind of leaned into speaking with a Cajun accent. <laughs> That's a tough one, by the way, a Cajun accent. And it mostly turned into me doing an impression of Val Kilmer from Tombstone. <laughs> it usually does. <laughs> but yes, that was a very fun session, and the the DM that I'd been playing with before then did not really go into, like, gritty, gory detail of what exactly was happening to you as you were being brutally murdered, but you did, and that's something that I've carried over into my games. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear you enjoyed it. Absolutely. So, Shane, we are going to get started with uh, these same questions that I ask everybody. So first and foremost, Shane, how did you get into RPGs? Uh, okay, so I'm a comic book nerd from way back. And sometime in the early 80s, TSR, who, made, who used to make Dungeons & Dragons, they would advertise in the back of comic books. And one of their uh, – and they did comic strips as their ads – and one of them, I don't remember anything else about the ad except that these adventurers uh, go through a dungeon, and at the end of it, they run into a red dragon, and the dragon says, greetings, mortal worms. And I just thought that was the coolest thing, so I tried to find out what this game was. And at the time, I lived in very rural uh, southwest Virginia, so there was no good place to – we didn't have any bookstores or anything like that. But strangely enough, the Sears catalog carried Dungeons & Dragons uh, back then, including including Painted Miniatures, the old Dungeon Dwellers series. So my mom actually got them for me, and uh, I read the rules and started running it for my friends and got everything wrong. But eventually we figured it out and had a wonderful time, and I was hooked ever since. 
Gotcha. And so this was uh, what second edition AD and D? Um, no, it would have been first. Gotcha. This was all the you know the original red box blue box days. And uh, do you remember your first character? Yeah, he was a half elf ranger named Arboreus. As a player and as a DM, how would you describe your play style? Uh, so I, I run things pretty fast and loose most of the time, very narratively, as I'm sure I did in your game. Uh, and then uh, what I've what I've talked about before, and I really enjoy is when it gets important, that's when I'll break down and do the crunchy tactical rules stuff. So, you know, a lot of people said throughout my career, well, if the party does something stupid, I'll let them die, right? But stupid is a really relative thing, and, and my characters often do stupid things because that's the character and I play the character, right? So what I prefer to do is, you know, you got yourself into a particular situation. I know what the bad guys have and what their stats are and how many of them there are. Let's see what happens. And, uh, you know, let you and the dice and maybe a little bit of luck in your tactics uh, rule the day. And that that tends to be how I run most everything. Going through your your history with this game, uh, can you think of one campaign or session of an RPG that you say that you would say was the most fun? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Most fun. I can think of some moments that uh, that I, I often recount, um, and one of them illustrates the point I just made. So uh, Genghis Khan and Tacticon in Denver with the Rocky Mountain Gamers have always supported Savage Worlds, and they just run tons and tons of games. And one of the guys who's been doing it the longest there is a guy named Neil Hyde. And he ran a Weird Wars Rome game one time that myself and Chris Landauer and Chris and Sarah Martinez and some others that people will know if they ever attend those conventions played in. And uh, we really got ourselves in trouble and we wound up in the, in the heart of this volcano. And there was this, you know, what we thought was a fairly minor threat turned out to be this ancient dragon. And uh, that was, that was putting forth dragon men to conquer Greece or something. But Neil did this voice with the dragon and uh you know it spoke to us and said something like i was old when atlantis was young kind of thing and you know the way he did it the speech he gave just kind of chilled us to the bone and then these hordes of dragon men came pouring out and it was it was exactly the situation i just described where you know we had to link shields and play like legionaries and because we did so we were able to survive for a while but uh, when things finally started going to hell my young, uh, ambitious character decided to, to throw the young maiden we were trying to save over his shoulder and run for it. And I told the big guy, played by Chris Martinez, I think, to hold him as long as you can. <laughs> and I ran for it. And it was just one of those, uh, you know, one of those, those sessions that you know, every, everything was both heroic and made us laugh. And it was just, it was really good and really cool. And then afterwards, you know, I really understood why I liked having this crunchy foundation underneath the narrative. So that when we got ourselves in trouble, it was up to us to decide what would happen, not just us negotiating with the GM or the GM taking it easy or whatever. And I really enjoy that. Now, again, with that same time span all across your career as a player and a GM, can you think of the least fun game you've ever played or run? Yeah, I can actually think of a couple. So 
Uh, I won't name names or systems. It'll just get me in a lot of trouble. But there was a, a game, a different system by a person who worked at a very large and well-known company. And it was four hours of my life I'll never get back. <laughs> it was just awful. It was really just an excuse for a guy to do weird little voices and no story was told and no role playing was allowed. And it was just really, really awful. And I was just shocked that, you know, a company that's, you know, a hundred size a time of a hundred si times the size of mine would have such an individual out demoing for them. It was, it was really strange. So yeah, that, that was a terrible one. Um, you know, I've, I've run a few adventures myself that, uh, I've been told, you know, and, and years later that people remember them and had a great time, but they kind of stuck in my head as not going particularly well. Uh, I play tested Deadlands Dark Ages at Genghis Khan just recently, and I think the adventure was too hard. And uh, the, the, the clues to get to the end were a little difficult. And that's, you know, there's a dual lesson here. One is I learned how to do a better job with that adventure. And two is I learned that, you know, not every group is really into solving mysteries, for example. You know, they, uh, this group really just wanted to, to kill stuff. And that is not how the groups I usually play with, uh, tend to run, whether it's home or most Savage Worlds conventions, in fact. So that was kind of eye opening. And, and it's not a bad thing or a judgment. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's different. You need to be able to adjust on the fly. If you could make an RPG for any fictional universe that as far as you know, doesn't have one, or if you could take an old RPG that hasn't had a new edition in a long time and give it a modern rule set, what would it be? Thundar the Barbarian, hands down. Nice. <laughs> Great stuff. And last but not least for these introductory questions, and Shane, the answer to this question can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. All right. If you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Wow. So my business cards used to read, everybody loves zombies. And that was both literal and figurative. It's, it's a little overdone now. Zombies are a little overdone now, but at the time they weren't. But what I really meant was everybody loves a touch of the fantastic in their RPGs. And that's not to say there, there's not a place for a, you know, a gritty cop procedural or something like that. But by and large, the settings, worlds, and sessions that tend to be most successful are the ones that have a little bit of a fantasy element to them. So I would wear that T-shirt pretty proudly, I think, even, even in today's saturated zombie market. Now we come to the part of the interview where we're going to dive into your career. But first, I have to tell you a little bit of a story. All right. This is about the first time, and as of right now, the only time that I tried to run a session of Deadlands. So this was right after that Mace convention. Okay. And uh, this has been referred to on this podcast as the Deadlands Incident. <laughs> I had only been DMing for about six months. I'd only been playing for just over a year. And I picked up the, the Marshall's Handbook and the Player's Handbook for Deadlands Classic, and I read through them, thought I had a, a decent grasp on the rules, and then I brought together my entire group that played D&D &D together, which was about eight people. Wow. Which is probably about three too many. Yeah. And then someone brought a date, so I had nine players. Oh, my gosh. None of which had ever 
played Deadlands before. I'd never run it. I'd only played it the one time with you, and it was a different edition. Yep. But I was damn proud of the story that I put together. Wow, good for you. I basically had the group following John Wesley Harden in the last days of his life, and the session was going to end with an epic gunfight on the train that he died on. Okay. And they were going to discover that he had stolen at some point and was in possession of Wild Bill's Colt navies. Okay, cool. And the session was going to end with the harrowed Wild Bill walking up to them and saying, I want my guns back. Nice. We got to none of that. (laughs) Okay. One of my players was playing a... He he was playing uh, the priest archetype that he'd reflavored for uh, his religion. Okay. And he was a wanted criminal. Another one of my players was a bounty hunter. I thought that since we'd been playing together for long enough, there'd be an understanding, this is a one-shot, we have to come together and work together. That understanding was not there. (laughs) The second they met in the saloon... He immediately said, I pull my gun and I shoot that son of a bitch. And I went, okay, we're doing this apparently. He missed. Oh my gosh. He kept shooting and kept missing. And it turned into a full-on saloon brawl. And that was the whole session. And yeah, and that was the whole session. (laughs) Well, you're a brave man tackling nine players with Deadlands Classic. So, you know, I love the old system. I wrote it. And it was designed to do, uh, you know, Josie Whale style, very chunky bullets. But as RPGs matured, it was just a little too slow. And especially once you started in, uh, started adding large groups and, you know, we did Hell on Earth, which was machine guns and grenades and APCs and all this kind of stuff. And it was just too much. And especially once people kind of figured out what they were doing and they might get five actions on a turn, you know, it just took, it just took too long. So, uh, you know, that's, it's a pretty complicated system by today's standards. So kudos to you for managing it all. And it didn't help that none of them had really any interest in the historical Wild West. So yeah. throwing out names like John Wesley Harden did nothing for them. Yeah, that's why, I mean, we tend to focus on the fantastic because, as I've heard somebody say, everybody loves zombies. Right. So when I know a group is pretty heavy into Pathfinder, d that kind of stuff, I uh, absolutely make sure that the adventure is going to be a bit fantastic. There's going to be monsters pretty quick. Yeah, I let I let too much of my own uh, nerdiness get in the way there. I know the feeling, my friend. Shane, how and why did you start designing adventures back in your early D&D days? Well, uh, I guess the first adventure I ever really wrote was the quest for the Holy Grail for D&D. And, uh, you know, I'd seen Excalibur on HBO. I was probably, oh, 15, 16 years old. I was inspired by that. And I just, I guess I got a taste for it there. And then I got into the, the Marvel superheroes game and realized that I could use it for anything. So I started making Mad Max and Conan the Barbarian and John Wayne Westerns uh, adventures with that and running it for my friends. And I guess that's where writing adventures came from. 
then of course later on it was uh you know that's what the companies I worked for asked for and we made a really big deal when I was in college of uh of our Halloween adventures you know we'd, we'd have everybody over we'd make food we'd dim the lights and put on some candles and play some kind of really creepy adventure or something and uh one year I was all into Torg and I wrote an adventure for it everybody seemed to like it so I sent it in and Long story short, they accepted it, and that, that began my writing career. And so it was with that, that Torg adventure that you kind of got your start uh, doing this professionally? Correct, yeah. And that was with, was that with TSR? That was West End Games. West End, gotcha. Yeah, yeah it was one of the rare periods in, uh, in the industry where a company was actively looking for writers to work on their lines. And uh, I sent it in, and I'm sure it was, was pretty bad, but I was fortunate that Greg Gordon gave me a lot of actual edits on it, sent it back. I did those and cleaned it up. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've, I've certainly discovered since then is how rare it is for somebody to really take the edits, do the work and, you know, clean things up and send it back in. So, you know, it wasn't that I was some genius writer. It was I was a, a hard worker and was was willing to, do, to put the time into it. Now, I mean, these days... Everybody and their brother has an adventure that they wrote and they post it online and it's it's just there's a ton of homebrew content out there available. What was it was it more the Wild West pun semi intended back in those days when uh companies like West End were openly soliciting adventures from fans more or less so really the only place that you might get published as an amateur was uh dragon magazine and even that was really tough um that's why it was really such a big deal when when tor did their open solicitation for for writers and i think they did it primarily because they had an in-house magazine called the infiniverse at the time so they could take uh you know very small uh submissions from people but once I got my foot in the door, things went very quickly, and I was able to write for just about anybody uh, pretty fast. And then not too long after that, um, White Wolf magazine would publish adventures. So there was there was definitely you know a few openings, but it was still really tough to get in anywhere. Uh, it's certainly not like it is today, where you know you can write it and put it up no matter how good or bad it is on a place like drive through RPG through like a guild program or something, or just online for yourself. Yeah, we had a, a guy on the show just a couple weeks ago named uh, Dave Hamrick, who less than a year ago started dmdave.com. That's a big homebrew website that gets hundreds of thousands of people on it. Cool. The internet has done some interesting things for gaming. Absolutely. You know, we embrace the internet very early on, interacting directly with our fans and answering questions, trying to clean up rules. You know, because we were still all new at it too. And uh, you know, we had a list a list serve as early as '96 with with the company. And you know, eventually that graduated into forums and Facebook pages and everything else. But uh, and that's always been super valuable for us. And we do most of our business direct as well. We love stores and we love to put things in stores, but you know, stores are so inundated with board games these days, it's pretty tough for them. So, you know, we go where where we have to. So of that early work that you did, what would you say that you're the most proud of from those days? 
Uh, I'm, I'm really proud of everything I've done, I guess, honestly. But one of the things that I think really stands out and I keep, you know, I, I will open every couple of years and look at again is City by the Silt Sea for Dark Sun. It's mm-hmm. a, it was my first big box set. It's uh, exploring ancient ruins and, you know, just all kinds of really cool uh, things to do and, and critters to fight. And uh, and I just love Dark Sun. I think uh, you know Brom and Tim Brown and, and uh, Doug Niles and all the guys that, that worked on that did a did an amazing job. I'm a, I'm a huge fan and remain so today. That guy I just mentioned, uh, DM Dave, just recently put out a fifth edition update on his website for Dark Sun. Very cool. Now, in those early days, was there anything you wanted to do with West End or TSR that didn't get approved or that you just never had the opportunity to do? Hmm, good question. Um, pretty much everything I pitched got taken. With TSR, they asked, uh, they they decided in-house what was going to be made, and then they would cast about for writers, so you didn't really get to pitch them. But as far as I can recall, everything I pitched uh, was eventually made. There was actually, maybe there was one, there was a big war game that we were going to do for Torg before the company went out of business that was, uh, I think it was called Realm Wars, and it was basically kind of the miniatures version of Torg, which I think I wrote most of. I certainly did the point costs for it, but yeah, that, that never happened. That's all I can think of. So real quick, tell me about the formation of Pinnacle and, and how you guys kind of got started in the market. Okay, so... Uh, while I was in college, uh, my wife and two friends, we opened a game store called Fun and Games in Blacksburg, Virginia. I went to Virginia Tech, and uh, I really discovered historical war games through the store. Uh, I'd heard of them before, but I hadn't really been able to play any. But my friends and I started playing um, – well, I can't think of the name of it. But we started playing historical war games, and I ordered a ton of them through the store, and I got really into them, and I got into all these different, special, especially colonial wars, and I decided to write a set of my own rules because nobody um, uh, made anything like I, what I wanted, and that was called Fields of Honor. And I did that through another company called Chameleon Eclectic, and they did their best, but you know, it's, it's a difficult industry. It was certainly more so then, and – my friend John Hopler had a World War II card game he wanted to make, and I had the first imaginings of, of what was, was going to be Deadlands. So what I decided to do was call it Pinnacle Entertainment Group because it would be a, uh, a platform that myself and my friends could use to publish their own games. So John Hopler, for example, would continue to own the rights to his World War II card game, The Last Crusade, but we'd publish it and sell it and manage it and so forth. So that's where, I, that's where the group came from and that has not happened as much as I, I i envisioned at that point but we do have a lot of creator owned properties still these days so you know there's there's that aspect to it but did fields of honor did we we published john's last crusade game and then of course deadlands and that's when things really took off so shane what was the inspiration for deadlands yeah, I've written about this uh, several times, so apologies in advance to those who have heard it many times. But uh, there was a White Wolf magazine released at a Gen Con, probably about 94, and it had a Brom cover of this Confederate 
a soldier. Uh, I guess he was a vampire, but I thought he was you know, more like a, a ghoul or something. But he's standing with two cross pistols in front of this tattered, tattered flag. It was just really cool. And they gave away the magazine at Gen Con that year to everybody. And uh, I was driving home from Gen Con uh, with our big truck full of uh, Last Crusade and, and the other stuff I just mentioned. And it's about a 16-hour drive through the night for us. And I just couldn't get that image out of my head. And I kept thinking, what what would cause this guy to come back from the dead? You know, what was so important to him that he you know, broke out of his grave and is wandering among the living again. And I started kind of envisioning uh, how he was moving about. He, he had a demon inside him. What would cause demons and monsters and so forth to, to arise in the world? And reckoning started forming in my mind. And then I came back and sat on it for quite a while. But eventually I put together this, what what you now know is Deadlands Classic, the first first version of that, and I ran it for my friends, and uh, you know the same group of people who really liked that Torg adventure that got me started for the most part, and they really liked this, so I decided I was going to publish it. Uh, I thought you know I'd print a thousand copies and be done with it forever, but I wanted to do it right, so I called my friends Matt Forbeck and Greg Gordon, and I asked them to to help me with it, and they decided they wanted to be a part of the company. Uh, and then things just kind of exploded from there, and we had to form our, a real company and hire people and, and handle all that early success that we, we were so fortunate to have. But being a, a very young guy at the time and never owning or running a business before, success was probably the hardest thing for us to manage. We grew too fast and uh, you know overprinted things and. You know, there's a whole long story there. We invested in a computer game that never happened and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, eventually we figured things out and we've been in, in really good shape for about the last 15 years or so. But that's where it came from. Yeah, I, I've talked about this a couple times on the show with a couple different guests, but there was a a thing in the 90s, not just in the RPG realm, but it seemed like in every single entertainment medium be it comics video games movies of just oversaturation was that something that you experienced yeah i think that's still an issue certainly in the late 90s early 2000s when we were doing our thing uh you know splat books were all the rage so you put out a game and then you had a a book for every class or character type in the game and, and we did that too and that was that was really part of our our success and part of our problem because you wind up needing a fair number of people to keep up that kind of schedule. And then because you've got so many people, you've got to make sure you're going to make payroll every month. So you've got to put out more product. You know, it's almost like that, that old cocaine commercial. You know, I, I do more cocaine so I can do more work so I can do more cocaine. No one did cocaine at Pinnacle. That's not my fault. <laughs> But you know, it was this vicious cycle that that has come to be called publisher parish uh, in the industry. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't really like it. So in the new incarnation of Pinnacle, which we keep very small, very intentionally, you know, we make what we want to make. We try not to make it so that we have to publish, you know, 40 books per line to stay alive, and you as the consumer don't have to buy a ton of books to stay alive and, and play the game. You know, we we really try to stick for the most part to the core rules and then your setting book. 
some of them, like Deadlands, are so big that we, you know, we make extra stuff like the plot point campaigns or the Smith and Robards catalogs or trail guides and that kind of stuff. But none of them are, are necessary. They're not like, you know, the old splat books where you need this new book to get all the cool new stuff that a gunslinger can do, for example. So one of the things that I noticed reading through that those two Deadlands classic books was a lot of the neat historical details that you put in. Was there a lot of historical research that went into Deadlands? Yeah, I mean, I was surrounded by tons and tons of books, everything I could get my hands on. And this is this was pre-real internet. So, you know, most of it came from the library or magazines or, uh, you know, being at Virginia Tech, we had a, a nice big library. And uh, I would just pull everything I could. But I've always been... A, a, an avid historian, my, my minor is in history. And, uh, you know, I love, I love fantasy and, and I really love it when you can tie it together with something in the real world. So your John Wesley Harden adventure would have been right up my alley at least. Well, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> at least someone would have appreciated that. Yeah. So throw that name out there and nine people have vacant expressions on their face. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. At least they'd heard of Wyatt Earp when I threw him in there. Yeah, and that's where, you know, like a good movie like Tombstone just does miracles for those names, right? But Harden's not going to get a movie anytime soon. No. <laughs> Although it would be fascinating. It would. I'd watch it. So now I just have to ask, since we're on that topic, Shane, what's your favorite Western movie? So there's a couple of different tracks. I think that my... I really kind of have three. So my my favorite serious movie, I guess, is The Searchers with John Wayne, which is, you know, it's a classic and a lot of people will cite it. And I, I think I think for good reason. But there's there's a scene in there where he finds, uh, you know, the young girl's body in the canyon and they, they don't show it. And, and you see the rage and the hate on his face uh, when he explains, you know, don't ask me what happened to her kind of stuff. And I think that really speaks to the difference uh, you know, between the, the cowboys and, and what we would call the Indians later on, that, you know, they, they just had these entirely different cultures and did things very differently. And in that particular movie, you know, they're the bad guys. But when you read real history, you know, obviously it's there's there's good and bad guys on both sides. But it, it the hate you see in an actor like John Wayne, who very rarely ever did that, is visceral. You know, you really feel it. And it's uh, it, it kind of helps you to understand how much the two sides probably really hated each other back then when these things happened. If you ever read histories of the French and Indian War, by the way, it's it's a similar uh, kind of thing. The most fun movie for me that I will watch every single time it's on is another John Wayne movie, Big Jake. I just love Big Jake. I think Richard Boone is just a, the best villain in the world. And there's so many great lines in the movie, and I, I just love it. We also get a little of that, you know, it's almost steampunk because the, his younger son runs around on the motorcycle and it. it's just really cool. And then the one that I think is maybe the most spaghetti and, and I love in that genre is how the, uh, once upon a time in the West uh, with where Henry Fonda is the bad guy and Charles Bronson's in it. I mean, it's just, it's a fantastic movie. Notice I didn't say any Clint Eastwood movies, right? I do absolutely love them all, but those are the three standouts to me that, that kind of, um, they're iconic of, of three different genres of Western or subgenres, I guess. For me, and this is because it's actually my favorite movie of all time. It's 
It's Tombstone. It's a fantastic movie. I will watch that anytime it's on as well. And I also do own a DVD copy of Big Jake and quote it from time to time. (laughs) Doesn't matter what happens. He dies, you die, I'm going to blow your head off. Yep. Not hardly. Not hardly. Yeah, and you, you can't go wrong with Tombstone. I mean, just an amazing cast, amazing writing. And while some of the details aren't right, you know, the spirit of the things is, is awfully good. And I've, I've you know, been to Tombstone many times. I've read every book I can get on the subject. I just finished a really good one called The Last Gunfight, in fact. But, uh, you know, it's uh, you, you feel like you feel like you're in that movie. It's just it's so well done. And Kurt Russell just I mean, it's just fantastic. Switching gears for a minute here, uh, not only do you have a storied career in the pen and paper RPG realm, but you also have a good bit of history in the video game realm as well. How did that come about? So uh, one of the Deadlands spinoffs is called Hell on Earth, and there was a writing, uh, uh, two writing partners, Jack Emmert and Rich Dakin, that did some work for us on that. And a couple of years later, Jack wound up... Um, Jack and Rick, in fact, wound up becoming part of Cryptic Studios. Uh, Rick was a founder, and then Jack uh, uh, wound up becoming a founder soon after. But uh, when that really started taking off, I happened to play City of Heroes. I saw his name on it. I emailed him, and I told him how, you know, how much fun I was having, how much I enjoyed it. And Jack said, why don't you come join us? And I said, oh, geez, I can't do that. And I'm, done, I'm running Pinnacle and all these things. And then we had... Some, some pretty bad times in about 2003 or so, 2005, when uh, the D20 bust came in and went. And, uh, we, we made a couple of bad uh, business partnerships and you know, things weren't working out. And I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go try this. I'm going to move from Virginia to California and work for Jack and make computer games. But I'm going to do this one last RPG that I just got to get out of my system before I go. And uh, that, that became Savage Worlds. So I was working at Cryptic while other people were helping me, uh, you know, run run Pinnacle on the side. Or they were really running it on the side. And uh, things just started taking off. And then things were also going really well in video games. City of Heroes was a, a big success. And City of Villains was uh, the one that I got to work on from the ground up. And uh, it, uh, I don't know, I, somehow I managed to keep both going. And uh, I worked on those, and then I went and worked on um, a Deadlands MMO here in Arizona. That's actually why I moved to Arizona. Uh, this company offered to make a, you know, a big MMO based on it. It was in the heyday of World of Warcraft and all that. That company, the parent company, wound up going broke, so we, the, the game never got made, although you can see uh, bits and pieces of it on YouTube on the Pinnacle channel. But I loved Arizona, so we stayed here, and then I commuted to a few other jobs. I worked on Neverwinter. With Cryptic again, the D&D game, which I just love. I think it's fantastic. Most of the great stuff was done after I was left, so I'll give the credit where it's due. Uh, and then I worked on several other projects uh, and commuted to do those from Arizona. You know, I keep an apartment in uh, Vegas or Austin or wherever I went to work. But I had uh, Jody Black and people like Simon Lucas running Pinnacle, you know, while I was away and and then about three years ago, I decided I just uh, was, was done with video games and I wanted to do this full time. And here I am. So you've mentioned, you know, in, being involved in City of Villains and you've got a, a history of loving comic books. I just yep. I forgot to ask this at the top of the episode. 
who's your who's your favorite heroes and who are your favorite villains? Just Spider-Man. like five of each. Spider-Man, hands down. I've, I've been collecting Spider-Man since I was about four years old. The rest of them are, you know, the classics, uh, Batman, Daredevil, Moon Knight. I kind of like the street-level heroes best. Um, favorite villains, I, I think Taskmaster is just one of the coolest villains in the world. Um, I wasn't – I always thought Kang was kind of silly, but one of the jobs I worked on not, not so long ago, uh, I got to do a little Marvel work, and I went and read the Kang Dynasty. So if uh, anybody out there is listening and – you can you can find it under um, in Marvel Unlimited. They actually have it labeled the whole series and, and crossovers and stuff as the Kang Dynasty. There's probably a trade paperback too, but it's uh, just an amazing story. I love Kingpin. Uh, always been a, a Green Goblin fan. Uh, and then there's you know some weird ones. People probably wouldn't know what I'm talking about. It's kind of like John Wesley Harden for them, right? <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm an old school nerd. Our, our taste in superheroes seems to line up a, a good bit. I'm a pretty big Daredevil fan. Yeah, Daredevil's great. And then uh, Batman is my all-time favorite. Actually, being a fan of Batman is how I met my wife. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we met at Dragon Con in 2014, and I was dressed as Batman, and she was dressed as Black Cat. <laughs> That's awesome. And then later we would go on to continue crossing over rival companies when I dressed up as Obi-Wan Kenobi and she dressed up as Captain Janeway. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. One of the reasons that Spidey and Batman were so important to me was I didn't have a lot of money for comics growing up. Um, They had some in our library. They'd rip the covers off and put them in this bin where you could read them. You know, it just kills me now, but that's what they did. But the two I would always try to get would be uh, Marvel team up and the brave and the bold. And that way I could read Spidey and Batman, but I'd also get to learn who the other characters were, right? Cause I couldn't afford to buy, you know, Dr. Strange and, and Thor and the Avengers and everything else. But when they crossed over, I'd learned about them. And I always loved the way they interacted with everybody too. Batman's kind of weird because I think he's varied a lot with different writers you know, especially after the Batman animated show came on where he was such a tough, grumbly kind of guy, uh, you know, compared to like even the Neil Adams Batman or the, you know, the, the Adam West Batman that influenced the generation for a while. But, uh, you know, I like him when he's when he's tough and grumbly. That's probably when I like Batman best. Uh, but I the one the series of his that I just I just adore is the it's just, it's just Batman Superman. And it was done before Rebirth and all that kind of stuff. But him and Superman think about each other as, as you're reading. And, uh, you know, what they say about each other and how they feel has nothing to do with what they say to each other, right? But it's just such fantastic insight into how they see it. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, it's just a really good series. If anybody ever wants to read those, highly recommend it. Now, was that the Batman Superman series that uh, Jeff Loeb did in the yes. early 2000s? Yeah, gotcha. that's pretty good. That's it. And it's just the logo, right? So I guess it's Batman Superman, but it's just the logo on the front. So I've got the first two volumes of that. That is a fantastic series. Yeah, they're so good. And it was made into, actually, th- those first two volumes were turned into two pretty good animated movies as well. Yep, I've seen them all, I think. Yeah, so... Sorry, I was just going to say I've seen every DC animated movie I know of. So, yeah, love them. So you you touched on it a little bit, but uh, 
tell us more about how Savage Worlds came into existence. Okay, so I was, um, I did this big Midwestern trip, I guess it was 2002 or so, and I was going up to play Fields of Honor, that historical miniatures game I told you about, at this Invitational in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. But along the way, I stopped and played games with some friends, and um, we played a game uh, that is out now in a different version, so I'm not going to name it, but it was just, it was pretty atrocious at the time. And I think it was a playtest copy, you know, it was, so it, was, it was fine, but it didn't go very well. But we had a real taste for playing uh, some World War II that night. And I said, well, you know what, let's, let's try something. I've already got this great Rail Wars game that, that the people I was with liked to play, at the Big Deadlands Miniatures game. And I said, you know, I think we can throw together uh, this World War II uh, adventure I've been thinking about. You know, right now, you guys can make characters in 10 minutes and, and we'll just play. And we did and we just had a great time. So then I came back and we we play tested a Deadlands adventure with the Great Rail Wars system. And then uh, we made some tweaks to make it a little more um, a little more granular for RPG play than the miniatures game was. And we tried a um, I call it Wilderness Wars, but it was French and Indian War with uh, these, these with monsters and then we did a Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire at the time. And we just had a great time and we loved it. And I, I was you know, thinking about the headaches we were going through with the Deadlands Classic system. Uh, we just had a lot of trouble teaching it to people. Once you got it, it ran just fine. And, you know, any of us who were experienced with it could really whiz through it. But, it, you know, it's, as you saw, it's a steep learning curve to get into that, right? But, uh, the way Great Rail Wars that eventually became Savage Worlds worked is just so simple. You know, you start with a low die, and the higher die you get, the better you are at something. You need a four, and eights a raise, and the, the 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 cool part of the game is your special abilities. You know, the skills are, are kind of nominal. It's what you do with your edges and things like that that really make you special. And put that into the first edition and, and played uh, a game. I ran a, an entire campaign called Evernight which sprang out of – have you ever seen the trilogy of trilogies that TSR did in the second edition days? It's the Beholders, Sahagin, and Mind Flayers. I'm familiar with it, but I haven't actually like seen okay, that so, material and read through it. Yeah, so they did a creature book for each of those three and then three adventures for each of those three. So when D20 and the open license and all that stuff happened, you know, we wanted to really understand the system. So I ran all three of those trilogies for, for my friends. At the end of the Beholder adventure, you kind of have two choices. You can talk to the big overmind that's controlling all the Beholders, or the Illithid, sorry, that are going to plunge the world into darkness, uh, or you can you can kill it. And if you kill it, which is what my party did, you plunge the world into a you know a thousand years of slavery and darkness. And the moment they did that and we finished this trilogy of trilogies, everybody looked at me and, he, and, and said, okay, now we want to play in that world. And I thought, yeah, that is pretty cool. You know, that's we like it dark, and that doesn't get any darker than a lithids plunging the world into actual darkness. So that transmogrified into uh, a game called Evernight of setting, and that was the first setting we did. And then after that, 50 Fathoms, and then uh, I think Deadlands was after that. So that's where it took off. So 
from the beginning, was Savage Worlds designed to be kind of setting agnostic? Yeah, so um, there's kind of a corollary to all this. So on September 11th, 2001, I was at United States Playing Card Company, which is uh, the country's largest playing card uh, manufacturer in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, long story about why I was there, but I was there pitching something to their, uh, they had a new division, they were making games, and that's where Todd Breitenstein's Zombies and, and, and Scooby-Doo and some other games were being made, and they were uh, really interested in, in doing new things, and I said, well, why don't we do, and, and, and I knew them, and we got, we got to talking, and I said, why don't we do this, this, this game called Savage Worlds, it'll be a D20 uh, game, we'll use the, the open gaming license. And we'll go back and we'll license all the big pulp properties that nobody's doing anything with right now. So Flash Gordon, Conan, uh, Buck Rogers, Solomon Kane, you know, all the stuff you can, you can imagine, right? And they were really interested. So I went out there to, to do the pitch and I stayed at my friend Todd Breitenstein's house, uh, who did the Todd Breitenstein zombies, of course. And, uh, that was, you know, the evening before September 11th, and then September 11th, that whole morning happened while I was there to do my pitch. So it was a, it was a, a really horrible day, obviously. But I did the pitch, and, you know, later in the day after things had calmed down a bit uh, there, and, uh, you know, I, I left thinking, well, you know, that nobody's going to want a game on a, you know, on a day like this. And certainly didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks, but then finally I did. And uh, I think maybe a month or two months later, and they wanted to do the whole thing. And they were going to buy the idea, and it was great. And then two weeks after that, they closed down the entire IP division, intellectual property division. A new owner or a new CEO had taken over, and they were just going to focus on manufacturing, just cranking out cards for Vegas. So it was this really long, twisted story you know, of all that happened there. But that was the original incarnation of the name Savage Worlds. And where the settings were going to come from. And then later on, when we decided you know, how much we liked playing our RPGs with the Great Railroad rules, uh, we merged the two together, and here we are. What advantage did you at the time feel that Savage Worlds would have over other similar kind of setting agnostic systems like, say, GURPS? So I love GURPS, played GURPS forever, um, but GURPS was kind of problematic when you did supers. Uh, the, the scale's just kind of limited. And the exploding dice in Savage Worlds are just a huge, huge deal. That and the immediate reward of bennies. And, uh, you know, I think to most people it just looks like, you know, fate points or uh, adventure points or something like that. But they're, they're really the economy of the game. They're almost like your character's hit points. So being able to do incredible things because the dice explode and being able to try multiple times with the bennies, I think is really the, the foundation of the game's success. And then there's kind of this weird thing too, where I just mentioned, you know, GURPS is a little bit limited, the three to 18 range. Um, one of the, the weird things that happens with us is once you go above a D12, there's no die type anymore. You actually just start adding integers. And why that's great is because now, like a you know, D12 plus 1, D12 plus 2, et cetera, is significantly better than a D12, right? And as it goes up the scale, especially in supers, you really feel it. And I run this huge Justice League Dark versus Midnight Sons and Daughters game 
and the characters there have uh, you know tremendous strengths, and and they really feel like it. They feel really powerful, even against a guy who's got maybe a D10 strength. God damn. Yeah. I'm just John Constantine versus Blade is now all I can think about. Yep, I've seen it happen. <laughs> nice. Actually, my favorite little sub battle that often happens there is there's Satana on the Marvel side and Zatanna on the DC side, and there's Swamp Thing and Man Thing. So and there's Blade and Morbius. So there's some good little matchups there. Doctor Strange and Doctor Fate. Yeah, it's great. Dead Man, Ghost Rider. I told you I was a nerd. Absolutely, and we are all about that here on Rolling Bones. <laughs> so, what kind of uh, updates have you guys made to Savage Worlds over the years? I, I did see that you guys recently concluded a Kickstarter for was it Adventure Adventurers Edition? Yep, the Adventure Edition. Yep. So really the. There's only been a couple of significant changes to the core system through the years. One is uh, bonus damage when you get a raise. We used to do it, you know, plus two per raise, but people had trouble doing the math, and it was more fun to roll an extra D6 anyway, so we did that. Um, and then the other was, uh, and this was way back in the 2000s, um, changing uh, the damage of a weapon from a flat number to a die as well. And again, because it's, you know, it's fun to roll dice and see them explode and stuff. Those are really the, the fundamental things. Some of the subsystems like chases, um, we've had a, you know, a few iterations of through the years. Chases are tricky things, especially when you're trying to do everything, everything from a parkour foot chase to a intergalactic space battle between fleets, right? But, but we do it. And I think the one in the, the current version, uh, the Adventure Edition, the chase rules in particular, uh, people do seem to love them. But the, the big addition to this one, it's, it's really subtle rules changes that had a, a, a huge effect. And the main thing is the support and test rules. So rather than have specific skills that you can use to uh, taunt or intimidate or, or so forth, I mean, we have those. But you can test somebody with anything. So you can use your fighting, for example, to faint with your sword. And that's pretty cool. And there's some, some good game effects there that uh, I fully admit were inspired by uh, the design of Torg and then my work on, on the recent version of Torg. But on the flip side of that, the one that really, I think, adds to the game is support. So uh, a, a great example, I just put this on Facebook not too long ago. In this Deadline, Deadlands Dark Ages adventure I've been writing, they're trying to, to, to look through this very dark forest uh, for tracks to follow this, uh, this, this, this being. And it's, it's really hard. So all the other players can support the guy who's doing the searching. So one person rolls survival, which is where tracking comes from now. Uh, and then another guy rolls survival, exact same skill, because he wants to help and he's just looking for tracks. Cool. The alchemist uses his alchemy skill to try to provide us some extra light because it's really dark in there, right? Another guy who's a warrior type just uses his notice because there were some threats in the trees. So he's looking for threats in the trees so that the guys on the ground can focus on uh, the track. So you can use all these different skills in whatever way that the players and GM agree on makes sense narratively to add mechanically to the die roll. And then everybody, instead of just watching one guy make a tracking roll, everybody's using their imagination and getting involved and really feel like they're part of moving into the next step. That 
sounds pretty cool. It is cool, and it's you know it's easy and it's fun, and it, it really merges the narrative and the mechanical. Also, seems like it uh, kind of guards against the tendency of the uh, the the exclusively combat focused characters to stack dice during non combat happenings. Yeah, and and the support rules have a max plus four anyway, right? So I mean, you can only affect things so much, and I don't know, there's just there's lots of cool stuff you can do now. That was always the goal, and we've done it, you know, more and less successfully in different subsystems. But to be able to be a face character and be effective in combat, right? Which was one of the things Torg did better than anybody's ever done it, and now we're much closer to that. So I'm I'm very happy about that. Now another question for you, kind of similar to the last one. Um, at this point in time, we've got fifth edition, which more so than any other edition of D&D can be easily applied to a variety of settings. How do you feel that Savage World stands out against fifth edition? So while I agree that fifth edition can be applied to many different settings, I haven't seen it done so very much yet. So I think... Um, if you really want to play hardcore fantasy uh, for most of the market, D and D and Pathfinder are still great things to play. If you want to play anything else, I think, or any other style in fantasy than the uh, you know the ablative hit point dungeon crawl, then I think uh, Savage Worlds is 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 a great alternative because uh, you know we have all the bells and whistles that everybody else does, plus many many of our own. Uh, you know, Fate and, um, you know, a few other systems like that are also good choices for people that, that want to play, you know, many different genres. I, I do think 5th Edition and Pathfinder are, Starfinder aside, are still very much fantasy-focused, and that's how people see them. Maybe that'll change, but I think right now that's that's how most people see them. Pinnacle has made expert use of Kickstarter over the, the past few years. Um how have you found that's kind of changed the way you guys do things? Yeah, it changes everything. It's um, it's great and it's terrible. So it's great in the sense that we can make things we probably never could have made before, like our huge uh, wooden collector set that we did for the Deadlands 20th Anniversary Edition, uh, the big box sets that we do. We get to communicate directly with the people who are buying our games even more so than ever before. Uh, so that's all the, and we get more money for it. You know, we get 100% minus Kickstarters, about eight and a half percent for what we sell, rather than 40% plus we pay shipping, right? Which is, it's just, it's kind of murder on you as a small company. Uh, what we don't like is that you know we don't appear in stores much anymore, and stores, as I mentioned earlier in the in the podcast, um, are have a tough time carrying us anyway because it's usually. I, I, so one of my friends uh, runs a, a large distributorship, and there are still 50 to 60 new releases every week in the board game category. I know that seems impossible to most of us out here, but that's straight from the horse's mouth. And, uh, you know, a lot of that might be expansions and, or so on, but that's, that's just board games. So that's not even talking about, you know, all the stuff that Paizo cranks out and all the other RPG manufacturers and so forth. So it's really hard for a store to stock any kind of depth on on any game line, you know, even D&D. You know, they will have the most recent stuff, but they may not have, uh, you know, like Rise of Tiamat or something, right? Because that's that's a couple of years old now. So especially for somebody like us, when we have so many different settings, 
uh, it's, it's just really tough for them. So what we've tried to do for retailers is put together these new box sets that, uh, you know, they just has to have, have one SKU, uh, in their store rather than trying to keep up with like, you know, all seven last part, last parsec products, for example. And we do direct sales to stores if they don't have a distributor that carries our stuff. And we, um, provide for stores on our pledge managers for Kickstarter, right? So we'll give them a deal and we'll give them the same parts that everybody else gets, including the PDFs and stretch goals. So, we care about stores. We do all we can for them, but we, we realize, you know, in many cases, it's a bit of a lost cause. And that's regretful to me. I owned a store for 10 years. So I, you know, I, I want, I want them to thrive, but you know, it's, it's just, it's maybe not realistic in every, every corner of the world. But Kickstarter itself, you know, I love it. I certainly backed a lot of projects. If you look at my profile on Kickstarter, you'll see just how many. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. You know, a lot of stuff's getting made that never would have been made otherwise. And some of it's a huge hit. I mean, look like, look at Kingdom Death, right? That never would have made it in a traditional environment of 10 years ago. And here's this, you know, this cool game that the fans of it get, you know, to own, buy, and play now because of Kickstarter. And even if you look at, again, in the, in the video game realm, something like Pillars of Eternity. Yeah. Great. Seems to have brought back the traditional CRPG. Yeah. That's right. Wasteland, one of my favorite computer games of all time. We've talked a lot about Savage Worlds. We've talked a lot about Deadlands. Shane, is there anything else that Pinnacle has that you would like to talk about? Yeah, and it kind of it, it's a it's a good segue from your Kickstarter conversation because one of the other problems with Kickstarter is you can really only run three or four a year maximum, right? So for a company like ours that has so many different settings, how do you support? your settings once they're out when you only have so many Kickstarter slots and without a Kickstarter, they just don't sell enough in the retail to go through a traditional print run. So one of the things that we're doing, and you'll see the first one here pretty soon, we have um, new 32 page supplements that we're putting out for all of our lines. They're kind of like the Explorer that we did, except they're dedicated to the lines. So for example, right now I'm finishing up edits on Ripper's Expedition Amazon which was written by Sean and Robert, Robin Bircher. And um, it's awesome. You get to go all through the Amazon and there's this cool mystery and it's, it's both source book and plot point campaign and mission generator all in 32 pages. And because we can print and sell those or print those here in the U S you know, we're just going to sell them. We'll sell them to any stores that want them, but mostly we know they're going to be direct items, but that's how we're going to support some of our, our big settings like rippers and last parsec and stuff that it's hard for us to get out a whole nother hardback book for, for example. We've had success with what we call boosters on Kickstarter. So we did Iron Gate for Last Parsec and we did Seas of Nawan for Lankmar. But again, you know, we can only do so many Kickstarters a year. Uh, you know, we don't want to triple stack them and we don't want people to get Kickstarter fatigue and that kind of thing. So this is, this is kind of our answer to how do we, how do we help people who want more stuff for a particular line? get this stuff and how do we get out the things that we're just dying to make and have to find a good way to do so that, you know, we don't lose our shirts on. So as of right now, what's next for Pinnacle? So the big release, uh, we're, we're, we've got a, a whole team working on the new edition of Rifts that came out with the three new books. So that's kind of its own team and its own beast. I mean, it's a massive project and those, 
guys and gals are, are just working day and night to get that done. I'm working on these 32-page books, which is Expedition Amazon. There's an adventure coming for 50 Fathoms. There's another one for Last Parsec. Uh, and some others I'll announce later. And at the same time, I'm also working on the companions, which we need to update since the new adventure, uh, adventures edition, adventure edition came out. So the fantasy companion is uh, top of the list for that and some cool stuff that goes along with it. So that's what's on the immediate horizon. Very soon after that, we'll start talking about what we're doing with Deadlands. Uh, and that's uh, obviously, uh, you know, a huge, huge thing around here. The next question was going to be, what's next for Deadlands? Sounds like you guys are uh, close to discussing that, but maybe not ready to announce anything. Yeah, yet. we're not ready to announce, but it's it's uh, it is being worked on, and it is it is pretty far along. It's not really a question of when it will be done. It's really more of a question is what's the right time to release it. But uh, it's it's probably longer than most people want, and sooner than they'll think. But you know, I just mentioned all the stuff that, that's right on the horizon, right? And that goes exactly back to that problem I, I talked about with Kickstarter. And something like the Fantasy Companion needs to be done through Kickstarter, we think. Deadlands must be done through Kickstarter because we want it to be really big and we want to do all the cool stuff that goes with it. And we also have Deadlands Lost Colony, which is now uh, done and ready to go. And we've got to figure out you know, what order we're going to release them. There's a big change to the Deadlands universe we're going to announce pretty soon. So it's a it's a fairly complicated question, but we do have, again, a whole other team dedicated to working on nothing but that. And it is, it is underway. One other thing I, I wanted to ask you about, in recent years, we've had two very big things in the video game world happen. Uh, just last year, we had Red Dead Redemption 2, and then coming up, I can't remember if it's the end of this year or early next year, uh, Cyberpunk 2077 is finally having its video game released. So with that in mind, do you still have any desire or hold out any hope for someday doing an actual Deadlands video game? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be, It's we're going to have to have a movie or a TV show first, and we work on that constantly, right? We have a a team that has licensed it from us and we have had deals signed and, you know, they go nowhere. And that's happened many times. And now we've got, you know, we've got, we've got others in the works right now and not just for Deadlands, but all of our stuff. Uh, so Hollywood is a, is a long and frustrating process as anybody knows. But what I found on the video game side and having been in the industry myself and, and I did uh, business development for all those companies I worked for as well. Video game companies have a, a habit, good or bad, you know, your listeners can decide for themselves, that they don't want to license things as a rule unless they're already really big. They would rather just create a similar IP themselves. So without a TV show or a movie or something like that, anybody who wants to do a, a horror western probably will not knock on my door unless they just happen to be really big fans or, you know, they just have a different mentality than those. They'll just create their own and, and, you know, probably to some degree, to be perfectly honest, rip us off. But, you know, we don't own the genre. But a lot of times a lot of our ideas wind up in other places that, you know, we find a little suspicious. But that aside, if we get a TV show or a, a, a movie, then, you know, we're bigger than the video game will be. And 
then people start knocking on the door again. So it's 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 a bit of a chicken and egg thing. Uh, well, actually, that's not true because Hollywood doesn't care. Hollywood has an entire entirely different model where they do want to license things. They don't want to create original IPs themselves for the most part. So it's it's a really strange uh, paradigm between the two industries. And I certainly prefer the Hollywood method better personally because you know the the deals that we've had on the table were really good. And, you know, then, you know, one thing fell through or, or another. But, you know, we've had deals with Stars and Sony and all kinds of big places that, you know, ultimately fell through because one person left at the wrong time. Or uh, like with the, the publicly announced one, we had a deal with the start with Stars that was going to go. Uh, they were going to show it live on Xbox. And then Microsoft decided to shut down all the, the live studios and focus on Windows 10 because Windows 8 was such a bomb. So, you know, little weird things like that. There was another incident years ago when Wild Wild West came out. Uh, we were looking really good to get a, a big feature movie done. You know, there was a script and people were attached and it, it was it was looking really, you know, really close to Greenlight. And then Wild Wild West came out and just bombed and Hollywood decided, oh, nobody wants to see Westerns, which I find just the most ridiculous premise ever because nobody ever wanted to see a Gladiator movie until Gladiator came out. Tombstone was a big hit. You know, there's all kinds of movies that defy their genre and are, are big hits because they're great movies. But it's hard to uh, it's hard to get a guy who's sitting behind a desk reading a thousand scripts a day to take a chance because it's easy for him to say no, he doesn't lose his job. But when he says yes and something loses money, he's out of the job. So it's it's a weird world, and I'm glad that we have more competent people than than myself to navigate it for us and. Things are looking looking pretty good on that front for something. We'll see what It's honestly been too long since there was a good Western movie out in theaters or even like a a good Western TV show. I don't count Westworld, that's a different thing. Yeah. Um I feel like Deadwood was maybe the last one, and that's been over for quite some time, although they are doing a movie they did do a movie it's out and i am working my way through the old series before i watch the movie because i love it so much but yeah fantastic stuff so at this point i'm gonna turn it over to you shane um anything that you have to promote go ahead and promote tell people where they can follow pinnacle on social media where they can buy stuff all of that you have a live mic in front of you awesome well the uh you know our web page is peginc.com, P-E-G-I-N-C. You can also type in deadlands.com. It'll take you there. We have a very lively Facebook uh, group, uh, both for Savage Worlds and Pinnacle in general. And of course, we have our forums. Uh, so if, if you want to find us, we're not hard to find. And everything we do or release is, is announced through those. Well, Shane, thank you so much for your time. It, w- it was great to talk with you. And uh, I hope you enjoyed yourself. Sure did. So, guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Um, Hope you guys enjoy this one. Hope you guys go check out some of these games, because I know a lot of you, because most of you who listen to this are friends of mine, a lot of you have really only kind of stayed in the D&D realm, and I really want to encourage people to try new settings, new systems, And if you're going to try one, Savage Worlds and Deadlands are great. Heck yeah, and there's a whole world of games out there, right? Many of them savage. 
So, next week we are going to have Steve Kenson of Mutants and Masterminds fame on the show. But until then, remember, dying ain't much of a living, boy. <laughs> Tell Steve I said happy birthday. I think he's turning 50 this week. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to us on Anchor.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to shout at me on social media, you can do so on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. And if you like miniatures and miniature painting, you can see all the work that I do on my Instagram, which is at Fenderboy771. Our theme song for Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard is Rumblin' by Trey Van Zant, who you can find at youtube.com slash C slash Trey Van Zant, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License. Thank you so very much, and have a great day.